This episode of The Latest is brought to you by The Latest. Tell a friend to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else they like to listen. And if your friend doesn't listen to podcasts, buy them a phone. Enjoy the show. It's Monday, June 7. I'm Greg Ott. This is the latest. A new op-ed Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia says he will not support the election reform bill known as the For the People Act unless it has bipartisan support. And he's not on board with Democrats passing the infrastructure bill with no Republican support. By taking it off the table, haven't you empowered Republicans to be obstructionists? I don't think so, because we have seven brave Republicans that continue to vote. Those voices are discussing bipartisanship, the concept of working together to forge a fiercely negotiated two-party agreement to kick the can down the road a couple more years. As the notion of working across the aisle reasserts itself as a key theme of the Biden administration, many throughout the country find themselves asking the same question. Doesn't it smell like the half and half is expired? Since the onset of Biden's tenure as president, a five-month-old government that's reduced the spread of both COVID-19 and push notifications from the Washington Post, cooperation on several key public policy initiatives have floundered over the lack of good-faith efforts to pass legislation. The 14th item on the job descriptions of Congress people, behind tweeting, collecting lapel pins, and accruing airline mileage. Republicans' lack of seriousness over the American Rescue Plan pushed Democrats to pass pandemic recovery legislation without their support, believing that keeping small businesses open and people on affordable health insurance plans were slightly higher priorities than determining which college track scholarship Mr. or Mrs. Potato Head deserves to have revoked. But failed negotiations over policies concerning things like infrastructure continue to imperil the construction of bridges, both physically and metaphorically. One of the more galling instances has been in the commissioning of a 9-11 commission-style commission on the January 6 Capitol riot, an open-and-shut investigation that should require little more sleuthing than identifying five letters on a flag. Proposed as an evenly split committee with five Democratic and five Republican members, Republicans have nevertheless shot down the idea as a Democrat trap, a pile of leaves in the woods covering up the hole where Hillary's standing by with a reusable straw to drink your blood. But rather than earnestly reflect on our recent past, like a Green Day quote on a yearbook page, these Republicans believe that we're better served moving forward toward the futuristic rearview year of 2020. Former thinkers, like forward President Trump, have taken to claiming that he'll be reinstated as president this August in some sort of edit-undo, hot-vex summer primetime ceremony, where... Roman Polanski will also return to the Academy Awards, Bill Cosby's honorary doctorates will be restored, and Lance Armstrong will be reanointed as the king of the Tour de France. That's thanks in part to a new anon theory positing that Italian military satellites were responsible for changing the votes in the 2020 presidential election in a conspiracy known as Italygate because Pizzagate was already taken. And this all comes on the heels of former U.S. National Security Advisor Michael Flynn calling for a homegrown Myanmar-style military coup, a model nation that gets more mileage out of their water cannons, rubber bullets, and live ammunition by fixing them on protesters demanding legitimate elections, not just those demanding racial justice. At a point in time in which the conspiracy genie isn't ready to be put back in the bottle because he's still got plenty of wishes to grant across our flat green earth, you think it'd be easy to write off an unreliable negotiating partner. Does anybody really want to haggle over the price of a used Equinox with a dealer freebasing meth in the showroom of Wally Edgar Chevrolet? 
But even with 19 and counting QAnon-aligned candidates running for office in 2022 and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's 100% focus on blocking Biden's agenda, some key Democrats nevertheless remain eager to fork over a spoon and lighter with their credit report. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, a lump of coal who moonlights as a haunted Regis Philbin stand-in, and Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema, who seems eager to embark on a new career as a meme, both remain deeply committed to preserving the long-standing Senate tradition of repeatedly tanking Democratic policies, to the point at which ushering in the people who believe that Jesus is the one piloting all those recent UFOs seems reasonable and well-informed because they might be able to get something done. But what's most galling to me is that these senators aren't holding back progress on grab-bag, large-D Democratic policies like healthcare, the environment, and making you feel guilty for enjoying a Quentin Tarantino film. They're intentionally being obstinate on voting, our only mechanism of leverage, and the source of their $174,000 annual salary. Steadfast opposition to passing the For the People Act, which would expand and protect voting rights nationwide, or eliminating the filibuster, which makes passing laws without a made-up supermajority possible, paints the world's greatest deliberative body as something decidedly all-American, completely out of shape, barely able to function, and sustaining itself on non-stop garbage. Republican legislatures at the state and local levels are actively passing scores of restrictive voting rights measures nationwide. And yet, under the guise of bipartisanship, Democrats are expected to meet them halfway on automatic voter registration, reducing gerrymandering, and improving election security? It's hard to reach your hand across the aisle when your opponent won't lift their thumb off the scale. I like to think that I live in what Karl Rove once derided as the reality-based community, where judgments are based on facts. Up is up, water is wet, and there's no such thing as a good Tobey Maguire film. But the post-truth alternative to reality, the Jimmy Buffett retirement community in the outskirts of Florida, is relentless. Your mom read on Facebook that Dr. Fauci boiled up the virus recipe in Wuhan himself. So it's time for more CrossFit instructors who believe that toothpaste is a conspiracy and the Earth is 50 years old to take back control. And I worry that we're squandering a moment to get some solid ground beneath our feet over this bizarre notion that we have to preserve the tradition of arcane Senate rules in our shirt sleeves while carrying out hostage negotiations with an assailant holding us over the ledge by our collar. This mirage of bipartisanship isn't just missing the forest for the trees. It's mistaking the desert for a poolside brunch. And if we can't adjust the spheres and our contacts to recognize an illiberal opposition that prefers conspiracies, coups, and despots, it's hard to see how reaching across the aisle for the sake of a stretch will somehow slide the American experiment back into focus. And now it's time for the O.J. Simpson Twitter update. Hey, Twitter world. Hey, Twitter world. Hey, hey Twitter, Twitter world. world. This is me, yours truly. Yours truly. My guest today is Kurt Toftlin, the founder and producing artistic director of Shakespeare Behind Bars, an organization that uses Shakespeare to help prisoners develop life skills that will ensure their successful integration into society. Kurt, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Last week, OJ shared his opinion on the virtues of getting an adult education while incarcerated. Hey, Twitter world, it's me, yours truly. Well, a couple of curious things this week. Bill Cosby decided not to take a course, a sexual course, in prison, and it probably cost him his parole. Um, so he's not getting out. Well, when I was in camp, I, I took anything. 
all the courses. I wanted to get home to my kids. I took a victim impact course that was particularly galling to me because I had to get up and apologize to my victims. And I got up and said, guys, I'm sorry I caught you trying to sell my stolen property. I'm sorry I yelled at you. And I'm sorry that the state of California ruled it was my property, gave it back to me, and you didn't get to make any money off my stolen property. <laughs> um, uh but I would have taken a, a cooking or sewing class. I would have taken anything to to get home and get out of prison. And I'm sure some of my guard buddies now said, you sure already took those courses at USC. <laughs> In any event, uh, God bless and get your shots. Kurt, what do you think about what OJ had to say? Well, I, I certainly think that uh, classes, education is the way that behavior is changed. There is correction in the title of Department of Corrections. So there is a belief, I think, that something should happen when someone is caught and convicted of a crime and sent to prison that you don't want them coming out worse than they were. And prison can be a PhD in criminology if the programming is just left to the prisoners. You become a better criminal by going to prison because there are experts there. So the only way to change behavior is not through punishment. Prison is punishment enough. And there's plenty of studies prove that that is not what changes behavior because you have to change thinking. And the only way to change thinking is not through punishment, but through programming. So I'm a big advocate for programs. My program is a volunteer program. The state doesn't pay a penny for it. I'm a nonprofit. I raise the money to support the program going into prison. Our recidivism rate over 26 years is 6%. Six out of 100 have come back to prison, whereas the national average is as high as 87%. The reason that I use Shakespeare is prisons are filled with human beings who have gone through horrific trauma. Some trauma is so horrific that they don't have language for it. Oftentimes, then they perpetrate trauma on others. And so the cycle continues. So when a human being who has gone through trauma, but can't talk about it, the only way to heal trauma is to be able to talk about it in your language. So Shakespeare writes a lot about outsiders. He writes a lot about trauma. He gives deeply truthful language for trauma and the emotional toll that it takes. So I can find a monologue or a scene in Shakespeare that mirrors the trauma that the prisoner has gone through. And as they begin to work on it, as an actor in the aesthetic, I am. Uh, I want to be very clear that I am an artist that does work that's therapeutic. I'm not a therapist who does work that is artistic, and I never forget the difference. So I'm not there to fix them. I'm there to open up a space where it is, uh, we call it a circle of truth, where you're able to talk and speak your deepest truth in, with confidentiality and protection. So when they begin as, as the prisoner who becomes an actor, who becomes a character to work on that monologue or that scene, we unpack it. What's the backstory on that? Where did that come from? Why does he say that? Why does she say that? Why do they do that? Uh, 
And as they begin to analyze it, it equips them then to use this technique to analyze themselves, to unpack their own motivations, to unpack their own experiences where those experiences caused acting out of, from that experience. And so I've not found uh, another playwright who is better than he is. Uh, He was a prolific writer. He wrote for a long span of his lifetime and lots of different experiences that he had as a a husband, as a father, uh, as an artist. But he's also reflecting society and what's happening during Queen Elizabeth's reign, the most longest and most powerful reign that England has ever experienced. Then in the safety of the circle, as a prisoner hears others talking in their own language about the trauma that they experienced, they get to bear witness to the fact that they don't crumble, they're not rejected, they're not kicked out of the group, they're, they're, they're not ostracized. That's the the, the, the space that is essential to their being able then to talk about their own trauma in their own language. And the moment that that happens, healing begins. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about OJ? This, this idea that there are two wolves who are Uh, in charge of prisons comes from uh, a Cherokee elder, an indigenous elder who was teaching his uh, young grandson about life. And what he says to his grandson is a fight is going on inside of me. You can think about that fight going inside of corrections. Um, It's a terrible fight and it's between two wolves. One of those wolves is evil. He is anger, he's envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, self-doubt, and ego. The other wolf is good, and he, she, they represent joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. And this fight goes on inside every department of correction. There are those members of the staff that are believe in punishment. There are those that believe that programming and redemption exists and forgiveness exists and trans human transformation exists. <clears throat> and the, uh, the young grandson says, to his grandfather, well, grandfather, which wolf wins? And the grandfather replies, the one you feed. So I, coming from the programming side, believe that it's programming we have to feed. And we have to feed a lot of different programming because not every program is going to affect every prisoner. And so you have to have a great diversity of programming, including education and Uh, so that they can gain the skills that they need when they get out. My work has to do more from the human standpoint, from the person, from the transformation standpoint. What I try to do is to assist them in becoming who it is that they wish to be, not who it is who they were, 
when they committed their crime. They have to understand who they were and where that crime came from, take responsibility for it. And when they do, then they have the opportunity to dream into who it is they wish to become. No one wants to be remembered for the worst thing that they've done. That goes for every human being who wants to be remembered for the error that you made and be branded with it for the rest of your life, which in essence is what happens to returning uh, citizens. So I, I admire the fact that he took classes um, that he saw that his goal was to get out of prison. And the way that you get out of prison is to prove to the parole board that you've changed, that you're no longer a threat to society. The one piece that he leaves out is the piece that is a requirement for the Shakespeare Behind Bars program. And that is the acknowledgement of the crime and the responsibility of the person for the crime. What we try to do is to take the prisoner back to understand where the crime came from. And that comes from childhood experiences. Uh, I believe every child is born good, but they're not always born into good situations. And as long as society is not going to deal with racism, and racism is the, the, the root, which then leads to poverty, which leads to uh, violence, which leads to ghettos and crimes and gangs and uh, addiction, um, all of the negative things that society is not taking care of, which leads to large incarceration rates. So he seems to me <laughs> to be a bit disingenuous. I think people have different uh, versions or uh, of what they think was O.J. guilty or innocent. Uh, guys in prison have their own opinions. I haven't met, doesn't mean they don't exist, but I haven't met anyone in prison that doesn't think O.J. got away with it. But because BIPOC beings don't get away with much, and because there's a high percentage of BIPOCs that are incarcerated, um, the fact that one got away with it. Some of the guys, I think, admire that he got away with it. Uh, they didn't. But I find his reasoning for taking programming to get out, that's the means to the end, right? Does the program really have an impact on you? And it doesn't appear to me that the programming had an impact with OJ taking responsibility, certainly for the the murder charges that he was uh, tried for. That's this week's O.J. Simpson Twitter update. Kurt, thanks for joining me. Thank you. And that's the latest, written, recorded, produced by Greg Ott. O.J. Simpson Twitter update produced by Christy Forsh. Thank you again to Kurt Toflin. If you want to learn more about Shakespeare Behind Bars, watch an amazing documentary about them, or donate to their nonprofit, visit shakespearebehindbars.org. As always, if you like the show, tell a friend to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, any weird app. We're on all of them. Uh, you can visit latestpod.com for all your latest podcast needs. I'm on twitter.com at underscore Gregot. Yeah, right. Hey, I've also got a new video out on cracked.com that you can watch on youtube.com, which is about whitehouse.com. A lot of URLs this week. See you soon. And by see you soon, I mean hear you soon. And by hear you soon, I mean you'll be hearing me soon. And by hearing me soon, I mean you'll soon be hearing me do another episode of this podcast. <laughs>